rambling in Havana I took a little risk Send lawyers, guns and money Dead, get me out of this Welcome, everyone, to episode 56 of the Matt Jones Podcast. Uh, I'm, of course, Matt. It is, it's actually a Saturday morning. I think the first time I've, I've done this on a Saturday morning, but I'm doing it because that was when our guest could uh, come on, and I really wanted to have him on the podcast. We're going to be joined by J.D. Vance, who wrote uh, a book that I am a, b- a big fan of, in part because it's a story you don't hear a lot, called Hillbilly Elegy. Um, which is really a memoir of his life. And so what I wanted to do before I had him on, because I, you know, I have him for a limited time, I didn't want to spend a ton of time just telling you what the book was if you haven't read it, because I actually wanted to ask him questions rather than have him just describe it. So the book is basically a memoir of his life, and he's young. He's, I think, 31, 32, something like that. Grew up in Middletown, Ohio, but his family was from Breathitt County, Kentucky. And so most of what he writes is really sort of about what he calls the hillbilly mindset, which is from eastern Kentucky and from Middletown, where, where he, he grew up. And it's fascinating. I mean, it's his life story, and there's all kinds of interesting uh, anecdotes. But basically, he's sort of giving, in some ways, a cultural critique of those of us from Eastern Kentucky. And I read it, and a lot of what I read I found um, very interesting and agreed with. Some of it I did not, but it was interesting to see someone write sympathetically about the people I grew up around and people, you know, my the place where my family is from. And he then went um, from there. He joined the Marines. He ended up at Ohio State and then went to law school at Yale and, you know, I, I didn't go in the Marines, but I also went to a law school similar to that. And some of what he wrote there, I, I sort of uh, related to. Now, his family circumstance was way different than mine, and we'll talk some about that. I mean, he had a very difficult upbringing, whereas I had a loving parents, et cetera. So that, that's different. But it is interesting to see him write about the area. And, uh, and he's getting a lot of attention right now because his book is being brought up into the political debate, sort of, well, why are working class – white people so angry and so pro Donald Trump. And so he's doing a lot of interviews about that. And that's what uh, a lot of folks are, why his book is getting a lot of attention. But for me, we'll talk about that, but that's not totally what's interesting. For me, it is interesting to see somebody write sympathetically about a place that I care a lot about. So the book is called Hillbilly Elegy. I, I recommend it if you get a chance to to read it at some point. And I think even if you haven't read it, my guess is most of you haven't, you'll enjoy uh, this interview. So before we get to that, this edition of the Matt Jones Podcast is sponsored by Vistaprint. You know, I was at the John Calipari Fantasy Camp yesterday, and Vistaprint, a guy came up to me, and in his uh, UK Calipari uniform, he had a, a Vistaprint business card. And he said, Matt, I made this, nine ninety nine dollars uh, promo code Matt. And I thought to myself, man, even guys who can pay $7,500, which, by the way, is what the John Calipari Fantasy Camp costs, even guys who can pay $7,500 still want to save money with Vistaprint. And you can get business cards from vistaprint.com. The promo code is MATT, M-A-T-T. 500 business cards, $9.99. You can design them. You can do everything you need right there. You can make all your little, you can put your logo on it, whatever, 500 for $9.99. Plus, if you want invitations or something like that, you can all get them there. The promo code, though, for this podcast is MATT. 500 business cards, $9.99. Use the promo code MATT. Everybody's doing it, including people at the fantasy camp, uh, so you should too. So with that, let's give a call uh, to J.D. All right, now happy to be joined by J.D. Vance, the author of Hillbilly Elegy. Now, J.D., am I right? You're in San Francisco, is that correct? Yep, that's right. All right, I want to. I, I, it'd be easier to do this at the end, but i got to ask you, starting with this, you know, growing up in Middletown, but you talk about your connection to Breathitt County, I'm not sure you could have found a place to live more different than that area to go to San Francisco. What's that change been like for you? <laughs> uh, yeah, I like to make myself as uncomfortable as possible, I think. But um, it, it's, it's definitely a huge change, and it's not, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's different in a lot of ways from the place where I grew up. But it's also, you know, I, I like it in, in a lot of different ways. It's, it's 
you know, the, the weather's nice and the people are typically pretty nice, even if they're sometimes a little weird, but it's a, it's a bizarre place, but happy to be here. Yeah, the weather I could get used to there, even though it never yeah. – it's, it's, it's always kind of chilly, no matter what time of year it is. But uh, I, I want to start with this. I mean, it's been interesting because when I first read about this book, I, all the articles I read about it sort of were in the context of this election, Trump, and all this stuff. And so I'm reading this sort of thinking I, – like I pick up the book thinking this is going to be like – a sociology book. But at its heart, JD, this book is really it seems like to me a memoir of your life and people are wanting to take other things from it and they should. But when you wrote this, did you think this would not just be popular? I mean, it's number 1 on the bestseller list, but did you think it would sort of resonate in the way it has or were you trying to write sort of a memoir of your existence? No, I definitely didn't think it would resonate the way that it has. I've been shocked by the reception it's received, quite frankly. But, you know, I part of it is just that people are so unfamiliar with this region of the country and with a lot of the people who live there that, it, you know, opening up that window just invited a lot of people in and, and I think invited a lot of people to, to show some interest in the book. But I didn't mean it to be... Um, I, I certainly didn't think that it would be this popular. I didn't mean it to be... Um, taken as broadly as it has, though I, I definitely do think that one of the things I was trying to do was give some insight, not just into my life, but into the lives of people who I, I, I thought were struggling in this part of the country. And even though I don't think everybody struggles the way that, that I did and the way that my family did, you know, I looked at the evidence and thought there were enough similarities, enough broad conclusions that I could draw that, you know, it wouldn't just be about my family, but it would be in some ways an explanation of the folks who struggle, this is what their lives kind of look like. Yeah, well, I, I can see that. Now, you grew up, it's funny, you quote in the book at one point Dwight Yoakam, maybe my favorite music artist of all time, and he has a similar path to you. You you grew, you sort of were born or kind of grew initially in Breathitt County, moved to Middletown, Ohio. So you didn't grow up in Kentucky, again, sort of like Dwight Yoakam. But I always hear Dwight Yoakam say, I still consider myself a Kentuckian. You spent your life in Ohio, but it seems to me you still consider yourself a Kentuckian. Am I right in some ways? Yeah, that's definitely true. It's it's because Kentucky is just what I think of as my ancestral homeland. It's the place where people that I grew up around, they love the most. It's where they had the fondest memories. It's where all of my family is from, so I definitely considered it my home, even though, you know, I spent a, a lot of time there when I was a pretty young kid, but spent less and less time by the, you know, by the time I was maybe 12 or 13. So it is a little odd in some ways that I, I consider it my home, but it's also partially just the, the place, and I write about this a bit in the book, the place that we all live, which is in southern Ohio, I think my grandparents always felt a little bit like outsiders. You know, there, there was the group of people who were like them, who were from Kentucky or West Virginia, who worked in the steel mill. But then there were a lot of people who thought of them as outsiders, who called them hillbillies, who thought they were rednecks and kind of looked down on them. And so when you grow up like that, I think you, you internalize that you really are part of that Kentucky place, even if you don't spend as much time there as you want to. And it's fascinating that people – I mean, I've traveled all over the country, and I think people in Kentucky – are more connected to the idea of being from Kentucky than almost any group I've ever seen. I mean, maybe Alabama has a little bit of that. But, like, people from Kentucky love Kentucky, and I think that's even doubly true from people from the mountains like you and I are. Do you get that sense? I mean, you've now been all over the place. I feel like that connection is stronger maybe than any other geographical one I can think of. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I, I've never seen anything like it. It's true of everybody in my family. We just, we love Kentucky. We talk about it all the time. And I still, you know, it, it's funny. I was, I was talking to my dad a couple of days ago and he was, you know, he's lived just like me almost his entire life in Southern Ohio. And he said, man, we got to get home. We got to get back to Kentucky. <laughs> and I just laughed because it's true. People really identify with it and just really, really care about, about the land and about its people. I do have to ask you, though, you went through the whole thing and never mentioned basketball. I mean, that's one thing in Kentucky that, like, everybody <laughs> mentioned. Are you not a sports fan at all? Uh, I'm definitely a sports fan, and it's something, you know, I, I was inter interacting with somebody on Twitter about U.K. basketball, and I still check Tony Delk's Wikipedia page every few months to see if anything's happened to him because 
you know, I, I, that's when I grew up really was that really awesome 90s run of basketball where, where Patino was the coach. And, you know, you may have been at Duke actually when – um, when Leitner stank that no, shot. No, 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 you got me way. You, you got me way too old there. I, I mean, I hate oh. Duke. All right, I, I hate Duke with a passion. But I was a kid during that, and I, I despise okay. Duke. But, 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 I mean, you still watch the Cats? Like, I felt like I kept waiting for you to talk about like sitting around the radio listening to Kaywood or something, and it wasn't there. I just didn't know if you weren't a fan of sports. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm I'm definitely a fan, and I still I still watch the Cats. And my grandma really really loves Kentucky basketball. But it's it's partially just I don't watch as much sports as I wish that I could. I don't know if I'm just, you know, getting a little too old or a little too busy. But I always, you know, we always rooted, and, and Mamaw was like this too. She always rooted for Kentucky basketball and then Cincinnati baseball and Cincinnati football, I yeah. think just because it was the closest team. And so I've, I've always, those have always been my, my three favorite teams. And, I you know, I, I went to Ohio State, so I really am into the Buckeyes too now. So definitely a big sports fan it's just it's harder to keep keep track of all of it these days when you start getting responsibilities yeah I think that that like that area you're from those really are kind of uh the teams well I want to you know yeah you go in to your your life story and you 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 had a much a much more difficult sort of existence than I did growing up I mean you had a mother who was uh dependent on drugs and but you had a very strong uh base with your with your grandmother I want to ask you, though, something that struck me reading it. You talked about in the book, and this is true, about how families in the mountains will will be very close, connected, will fight with each other, et cetera, but they don't want that going out to people. Like, they want to keep it very internal. They don't like if you're a traitor and talk about, uh, you know, talk about your problems to everybody else. Then you write this book, and you sort of kind of put your family's <laughs> business all out there. Was that hard, and what has your pushback from your family been about that? It's definitely been hard, and I was definitely worried that people would be a lot more upset than they have been. I think the one thing I was able to do to head off that fear of outsiders, that distrust of outsiders, is just involve my family in the book. So anybody I write about in any any detail, I got their permission. I, I, I plumbed their memories. I tried to talk to them and get their side of the story. So it wasn't just me writing about them, but it was in some ways they felt like they they were all writing or part of the writing process about our family. So so that's that's the way that I, I, I tried to to avoid people feeling like I was kind of judging them, judging my own family from the outside. But you know, the, 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 there's definitely still a, a sense in which I feel uncomfortable talking about this stuff. I feel like I've let these outsiders into some pretty you know torrid details about the family. And the, the ultimate thing I decided is that it, it was worth it if the book would, would kind of explain the way that I grew up, the way of life that I cherish, but also give people a little bit of insight into why these people are struggling as, as I think they are. When, you know, when I read it, okay, so I, I find ni- 80 to 90% of what you said to be something I agree with. We'll talk about the 10 to 20 I might disagree with in a minute, but that, you sure. know, you, you mentioned in the book that ABC came and did a story about uh, the mountains, and, and in describing it, a lot of people were very upset there, saying you didn't give the full perspective. The New York Times recently did a story that said Clay County, Kentucky, was the hardest place to live in America, and a lot of people in Clay County were really upset about that, and sort of, sure. you know, why do you have to paint us like this? That's a delicate line, and I, I deal with it on my show. You know, my show's syndicated all over the state, and, and I deal with the same thing about you want to show light on what's happening in the mountains because a lot of people just don't even get it, J.D. But when yeah. you do it, people feel like you're embarrassing them somewhat. Like, did you do you get that sense? Yeah, I definitely get that sense, and honestly, I understand it, right? I mean, these people have been maligned and stereotyped for over a century at this point, so I, I get the sensitivity to outsiders coming in and, tr- and painting a portrait that isn't totally accurate, that makes them look like toothless hillbillies. You know, my grandma always said, we're the one group of people that it's still okay to look down upon, and I really And think they're, I they're, agree with you. That's still it, the case now, J.D. I mean, I, that's, this yeah. is the one group you can still make fun of, and it's, it, it sucks, but yeah. that's the truth. Yeah, and, and yeah, absolutely, and and so I, I get it. I, I get that sensitivity, and that's why I, I, I tried to say, you know, this isn't how everybody lives. It's not even how most people live, but but this is how a big chunk of the people who are struggling. This is what their lives look like, 
And so I, I, I try to take a bit of a, a tough love approach where I'm hopefully fair to the fact that a lot of people do not live lives like the one that I grew up in. But look, if we want to shed light on this problem, if we really want to make these people's lives better, my people's lives better, then we've got to be open about the problems. And so it, it's a de- delicate balance to strike. I'm sure I didn't strike it entirely perfectly, but hope I hope that I did at least an okay job. I think you did a very good job. But now let me give you a criticism that was published in the Lexington newspaper this weekend. I don't know. Did you see that last weekend, a, a writer about the book? Uh, I, I probably did. I probably read everything. Good <laughs> I would be this. I'd be the same way. I'd be the same way. But he, but they wrote basically saying, look, you, I mean, maybe your your heart's in the right place, but you didn't live there, right? So you can say this all you want, but you're not a hillbilly. And so when you write this, there's still an outsider part of it. I, I, how do you answer that? Do you do you think that's fair or not? Well, I don't think it's fair for for a couple reasons, and I and I read that review, and I th- I think that that the writer's heart was in the right place, so I'm not especially angry about it. But you know, so so one response to that is we can't go calling everybody who's an outsider, or sorry, everybody an outsider who doesn't have a perfect connection to this area, who hasn't spent all 32 years of their life there, because then the the pool of people who are insiders is so small that you're not going to get, I think, a, a good sample of people who understand the region, who understand its problems, who understand all the good things about it. You're just going to get a really small sample size. Um, I, I think more importantly, you know, the, the outsider thing is something my grandparents heard a lot. They heard it from their family after they left the mountains. They heard it from people back in Middletown about how they didn't belong in Middletown. And so part of it is just when you, when you grow up like I did, when you spend a lot of time in the mountains, but you ultimately spend most of your life outside of it, you, you don't really feel like you belong anywhere. And it, it's, it's important to note that I'm not necessarily just writing about Eastern Kentucky. I'm not saying, look at these Eastern Kentuckians and all their problems. I'm really writing about the broader region. Yes. And I feel like I have at least a decent perspective on the broader region because I spent a lot of time in Eastern Kentucky, but I also was part of that migration that went from Eastern Kentucky to Southern Ohio and tried to make a life there. And frankly, as much as, uh, you know, we hated the term hillbillies when it was cast upon us, it's a term that we heard, I think, a lot more than people from Eastern Kentucky because we were we were mixing in with these outsiders who like to call people like us hillbillies. That's an interesting point because, like, you know, I grew up in Bell County, and I didn't – I mean, the phrase hillbilly – even saying it's kind of weird because I didn't hear – I mean, we didn't call ourselves hillbillies. And there's a sense yeah. of which – is that – like, I wondered how you came up with the term hillbilly. Like, I heard redneck a lot more than I heard hillbilly. So did you pick that because that's what people called you when you didn't live there? Because that's not really a phrase I hear in eastern Kentucky. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I definitely heard it a fair amount in Eastern Kentucky. It may have just been my family, though. We definitely would have called ourselves, I think, hill people or mountain people. Now, I've heard mountain people. Like, that's something I would have yeah. heard a lot. Yeah, but go ahead. Yeah, and, and, and so I, I do think that it, it's primarily a term that was used as a pejorative against my grandparents, and they really internalized that, look, these people are going to call us hillbillies. Well, we're going to call ourselves hillbillies. Yeah. Uh, we'll call it our, to ourselves as a term of endearment. But if anybody, if any outside ever calls you a hillbilly, then you need to punch him in the nose because <laughs> yeah. that's just not that's not acceptable. But I, I did hear it, and, and maybe it's just because you know my my family that's still in Eastern Kentucky heard it from my grandparents that they use the term a lot more than other folks. But it's definitely something I heard a lot in my family, um, and I think at least part of it has to do with the fact that my grandparents heard it a lot when they were in Middletown. Now, part of your that's argument in Ohio, yeah. I actually, I don't want to summarize your argument. It's better coming from you. But, all right, let's go away from your family history and just big picture your sort of – if you were going to say to people in a minute or two, this is my more cultural argument about, to use your phrase, hillbillies and what needs to kind of be done, how would you summarize it? Because it's, it's, I want you to do that instead of me. Well, my, my argument is that – as a matter of fact, it's pretty hard for kids who grew up like me, maybe kids who grew up like you, to make it in the modern America. It's, we talk a lot about upward mobility and inequality, and it's harder for kids like us to become upwardly mobile. And I think the reason it's harder for those kids to become upwardly mobile is because they learn certain habits from their family environments. They learn certain 
problems related to domestic chaos and to how they view the outside world. I think they learn a certain amount of despair and hopelessness about what their choices can do and what, what effect those choices can have on their life. And it all combines into a mixture that makes it hard for a kid who grows up like me to, to do well in this, this modern American economy. And it's important to say that I don't think it, 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 it's not the fault of kids who grew up like I did. It's not a matter of placing moral blame on those kids. What it is is recognizing the way that their families and their communities and their broader world makes it hard for them to get ahead. And we got to recognize why it's hard if we're ever going to try to help them. Real quick, harrys.com, the razors that we've talked about forever, these guys, they went to Germany, they got their plant, next thing you know, they're taking over the razor business. If you think you've heard about Harry's razors a lot more recently, the answer is that you have. They're now in stores, which who would have ever thought that would happen? They started, you know, we were one of like the first radio shows to have them on, and now they're in stores because they're huge. harrys.com, it's less expensive and a better shave. What do you want? Use a promo code MATT, M-A-T-T, for the podcast. If you like the podcast, MATT, M-A-T-T. Go ahead and put it in. You get $5 off, so your first thing with the three blades and the handle and all that is $10. You can't beat it. And once you get started, I promise you're not going to use anything else. Promo code MATT, M-A-T-T, harrys.com, the best shave of your life at a great price from Harry's. Now back to JD. And I make the argument, you tell me if you agree, that – there's really no one in modern American politics or government that takes up for people like us. And I, what I mean by that is I don't see the people advocating for poor, white, rural people in America. They advocate – what's interesting is the Republican Party sort of took from the Democratic Party that mantle, and they advocate for their social beliefs – but it feels like to me no one advocates for their economic interests. Do you agree with that? Uh, I definitely do agree with that. And it's, it's a shame, isn't it? Because these people feel neglected. And I don't think that they feel neglected for entirely terrible reasons. Oh, I agree. It's, it's, yeah. definitely, it's, it's definitely been the case that they have chosen the Republican Party for pretty complex and sociological and political reasons. And what's happened after they chose the Republican Party is that that party has really ignored a lot of their economic interests. And that's, that's frankly, you know, we, not, not to make it too modern, but I do think that's part of where the Trump phenomenon comes from. I totally agree with you, and I want to get to that. But, all right, so I'm a, you're a Republican, right, or you're a conservative. I'm a, I am. I'm a, Demo- I am. I'm a Democrat and, and lean on that side. But I will be a huge critic of the National Democratic Party and even the state one, but specifically the national one, because I think that was a party that was once a party of working class. You talk about how your grandfather uh, always voted for Democrats except Ronald Reagan, I think you said. Um, Yeah. And then – and I think they were interested in that area when there were coal mining unions, right? And now it's almost become a party of sort of, you know – Minority interest, which I think need to be advocated for, but also sort of a northeastern elitism, liberalism, like cultural liberalism. And I can see why people that would turn people off. The same thing that turns your grandfather off towards Republicans 40 years ago probably is what would have turned him off to Democrats now. Am I right about that? Yeah, and if you think about my grandpa, he voted against the Democratic Party one time, and it was in 1984. He said he voted for Walter Mondale. He didn't even like Ronald Reagan that much. What he said is that he hated Mondale because he was like this northeastern snooty liberal, and he didn't want to he didn't want to vote for somebody like that. And I think that's a, that's a big part of what's going on with with the modern Democratic Party is that they've identified with this sort of cultural cosmopolitanism which is admirable in some ways, but in a lot of ways it's built around looking down around on people who, who aren't necessarily like you. I mean, it, it is definitely the case that people in eastern Kentucky and, and southern Ohio and wherever else feel looked down upon by a big chunk of the political elite, and most of the time the political elites who are looking down on them are part of the Democratic Party. Not all the time, but a lot of the time. And they don't just feel it. J.D., they do it, right? Like, it's not just feeling that way. I mean, oh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Listen, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no. I mean, I, I, I agree with you. They, they, they definitely do do it. You, you hear it in the way that they talk about these areas. 
I mean, you hear it in the way that they talk about politics right now. You know, they, they say, why do Republicans vote the way they do? Why are these white working class voters voting against their own economic interests? And, and basically the answer is some combination of they're clinging to their guns or religion or they're a bunch of dumb racist rednecks. And if that's the only thing that you can think about your fellow countrymen, then you shouldn't be surprised that those countrymen don't think very highly of you either. I, I totally agree. When I, I clerked on the D.C. Circuit for a judge there, and I was a conservative judge, and the three co-clerks of mine were from uh, New York, L.A., and, and D.C. And I took them to my hometown. And they were all – Which was the ju- – uh, Ray Randolph. Sorry, wait, Ray Randolph. Oh, awesome. That, that's, that's great. Yeah, of course. I know him. Yeah. Or well, I love him. Yeah, well – I, I, I kind of thought he was a jerk, but don't. But uh, but but beyond that, it was still a great experience. But but the DC, I, I was there the year John Roberts was there, right? So like on okay. the DC circuit, I got to know him. It was an amazing experience. But I took those three guys, and they were all liberals. For some reason, he hired a clerk, uh, you know, a chamber full of liberals, and I brought them all to my home. And before we went, they sort of would always laugh about where I was from. And when we went, they all said, "JD, those are the nicest people I've ever met in my life." And I wanted to say, like, you know that stereotype you have, that's not how people are. And they kind of were like, well, that's your family, but everybody else. And I was like, no, that's not how it is. It's so strange that if you actually got the people to interact with them, it's a completely different thing. But unfortunately, they never interact with people from rural areas in places like Kentucky. Yeah, no, that's. That's definitely the case, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a story, and it, it's a journalist I have a lot of respect for, um, but asked me, you know, whether my, my well, the first time I brought my wife home, who's an Indian American, uh, whether my family accepted her, whether they were suspicious of her because, you know, the color of her skin or her cultural background, and my response was, you know, I, I had almost, I was a little bit worried about that. I had kind of internalized some of the values of the elites, and I was even a little bit worried about that. My family adores my, you know, then girlfriend, now my wife. I joke with with both of them that they like each other more than they like me, <laughs> and it's it's it, it's just amazing how you know for for all of you know the problems that I, that I, I do write about and I think are real. I also say and make very explicit: these are the nicest people in the world. They will bend over backwards to help shovel a neighbor out of the snow. They will get out. And, and, and stand at respect when a, a funeral motorcade passes by. These are just, these are really the best people in the whole world. And I, again, I, I get the sensitivity of the dumb hillbilly stereotype because it doesn't come along with the stereotype that is much more true, which is that these people are just very sweet and they, they, they care a lot about their neighbors and their families. You mentioned that, you know, that I know part of the reason people are so interested in this book is, is the Trump phenomenon because these folks. Trump is really having success with people like this. And and I cannot stand Trump because I think he's a fraud. <laughs> well, I think he's a total fraud that is exploiting these I people who is a total fraud, okay? But with that said, and I can give you 95 things about him that drive me nuts, at least if I can give one positive, at least he is casting a light on this way of life. Now, I think he's doing it in a way that because he's so awful – it makes them sort of look awful, which stinks. But at least books like yours are getting attention because of him, so that's at least something, right? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I told my editor that America's big problem would be the book's gain, so I, I guess it, it all balances out in the end, but not really, of course, because I would definitely rather the book not be getting the attention that it's getting but have a better set of political candidates running, running for well, president Well, the candidates right now, are awful, but, but the issue here, which is that there's this great swath of America that feels left out, is an important one for people to talk about because they haven't been. Yeah, that, that's definitely true. And it's like, like you said, I, I agree with you on Trump because I don't think that he's the person. I, I, I don't think he actually cares about folks. I think he just recognizes that there was a hole in the conversation. And that hole is that people from these regions of the country – they feel ignored, they feel left out, and they feel very frustrated. And I think, of course, in a lot of ways, they, they feel that way for totally justifiable reasons. So it's, it's a problem that, that Trump has been the vessel of the, a lot of that frustration. But as I tell people, look, that frustration is going to continue to exist four years from now, eight years from now, unless somebody better and more legitimate picks up on it. And I just hope that happens. You know, I, I look I at do. the political conversation we're having right now, and I think to myself, 
my God, it's only going to get worse. And I just hope that isn't the case. Yeah, I do too. I mean, and I don't care if it's a Republican or a Democrat. I just wish there was somebody who really, like, really cared about these people doing it. You know what I mean? I mean, like, you mentioned the elitism. I mean, Hillary Clinton, who I'm not a fan of, she, I mean, she showed that in the whole let's put coal miners out of work. You know, I mean, she uh, pla- Don't I mean, get me started. Well, I mean, yeah, but she played into this. I mean, you made a point in your book that the decline of coal is not all Obama's fault. Now, I mean, I think the EPA played a small role in it, but it was going to happen anyway. But she, would, she, like, played into it with that comment, and now people just in the mountains despise her. And, and J.D., I understand why. And that's like that elitism, that just cluelessness coming out of her. Yeah, I understand why, too. And it, it, it's not just about the economic part of it, right? I mean, pe- people, you know, people talk about putting coal miners out of business and bringing in green jobs, and that's all great. And I, I definitely hope that Eastern Kentucky can benefit from, from the green energy revolution that we're seeing in the country. But, you know, you grow up in these areas, and people talk about how coal won World War II. They talk exactly. about how coal powers the American economy. And they're proud of it. And, proud. and they're proud yeah, of it. They're that's not, right. Exactly. It's not just about a wage. It's not just about a good job. They're proud of what they've been doing, and they have every right to be proud of it. I mean, you look outside the, the state house in, in Charleston, West Virginia, and there's a statue of a coal miner. Mm-hmm. I mean, people are proud of their families. They're proud of their grandparents who got black lung in these mines, and there's just not even an ounce of, of cultural respect. The Democrats seem unable to even show any respect to coal miners, they're just like, they're dirty jobs, and we're going to put them out of work, and we're going to bring in windmill jobs, and that's all great, and these people are going to slap us on the back and say thank you for your generosity. It's a lot more complicated than that. And they don't, I mean, and I think this is true not just of coal, it's of all manufacturing jobs. People who work their lives in a manufacturing job are proud of what they produced. Like, it's not just, like, that's partially why I think that job, in addition to the money, was such a, was a happy job to some extent, although, I mean, coal miners also, a lot of them didn't like it, but they still felt proud at the end of the day. They were doing their part in America, right? There was a, there's that Alabama song that's like a 40, I think it's called 40 hour week, but the point of it is Pittsburgh steel workers, all these people, they're producing and it's what make, makes America go. And when you just shit on that, JD, I can understand why people would just say, you know, screw you, you're shitting on my entire way of life. I agree with you. They, they say, we built something, right? And they're right. My grandpa always used to be able to point out the parts of a of an old vehicle that were built with Armco Steel, which is the steel mill he worked at in southern Ohio. It's this pride in having built something, I think a justifiable pride in having built something. And it, it matters, right? You can't just like you can't just shit on it. Do you Okay, you, you made an interesting point and I see this happening as well. I think there used to be a distrust of bosses, elites, et cetera, that has become a distrust of the of the government. Like, and and that distrust of the government shows itself in a lot of these like crazy conspiracy theories that people will forward. And like, you know, you mentioned some of them. Some of these, what now the term I guess is alt right websites come up with, and everybody believes them. Do you think that's just a sense of again feeling like? well, everything's against us, so this stuff must be true. I believe that's where it comes from. My worry is that I don't know that it's going to be easy to turn off once you create that level of frustration yeah. and, 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 and conspiratorial attitudes towards a lot of what's out there. So I definitely think it comes from a legitimate place and that people don't trust the government, they're frustrated at the government. But it's, it's, it's something that I don't think is very productive because I, I, I think one thing that, this, that, that people would benefit from is just being more engaged and being a little bit more socially integrated in the larger American community. And I don't think the elites have been good on this front, but to the degree that people are reading conspiracy websites and feeling any even more isolated, then I, I don't think that's going to be in anybody's best interest going forward. And that's what makes me mad about the Trumps of the world being frauds, is again, because they don't care, they're just exploiting those people for economic gain. And, and I think the, the followers of that are actively hurting their lives, like you said, by isolating themselves more and more. Yeah, that's that's definitely something I believe. And the, the problem is, you know, whether it's in how people think about their communities or their families or their own lives, or even how they think about politics, 
that sense of isolation has this negative cascading effect, right? It makes you less likely to be introspective about your own family, your own life. It makes you less likely, I think, to be very tough on your politicians and to demand certain policies and certain changes that are going to be in your best interest. If you feel so isolated, it just creates a very, very low bar for what you expect out of your government and even for what you expect out of your own life. And I think that's a really bad problem. All right, let's talk about sort of solutions, all right? Because in your in your book, it strikes me, you, you sort of have – on one hand, a hopeful sense, and on another hand, not. I mean, you, you, you're you quick to say, look, the government can fix some of these problems, but really not a lot of them. You put a lot, it seems to me, maybe more than I would, and you tell me if I'm wrong, you put a lot of this on, like, all right, and I think this is what made that writer in the Herald mad, mad this notion of you all need sure. to change yourself, right? Like, you need to get with it and change yourself. Now, you recognize that that was easier for you because you had somebody in your grandmother who could help you do that. Like for me, my mom sort of from day one had me on the straight and narrow. How do you respond though to the people? Like, what do you do with the people who don't have that? Do you still put the personal blame on them? How would you respond to that uh, question? Yeah. So, so one thing I'll say is that I avoid the conversation about solutions in large part. I talk a little bit about solutions, but I avoid it because I think it's a much more complicated story and it would be a whole nother book. And what I really wanted to do is just give people a sense of what the problem looks like, because I thought if they accepted the scale and the scope of the problem, then we can move on and have a better conversation about solutions. So with, with that out of the way, you know, I, I think that what's important to, to recognize is that moral blame is not something that I think these poor people deserve. I don't think that it's about blaming them for, for their individual problems. What I do want them to, to, to gain is a sense of, of agency and a sense that they do have some control over some of these issues and some of these problems. The way that I think about it is that the government, as, as, as to use a phrase I used in the book, can put its thumb on the scale. The government can help. The government can do things that will make lives better for people, will bring better jobs, bring better opportunities. But I think this sense of disconnect, this sense of isolation, the family violence and family chaos that I saw as a youth, the drug addiction, a lot of these problems cannot be totally fixed by government intervention. Yeah. And so what I want people to recognize is, one, yeah, the government can help us, but two, we've got to take a little bit of responsibility. If, if, if we're yelling and screaming at our kids or at our at our, our partners, like we're spectators in a football game, that's going to have negative consequences, and that's not something the government can fix. We've got to fix that ourselves. If we're a religious community, a church leader, and everybody who's sitting in our church views is the upper-middle-income American with no significant problems in their lives, then we've got to think about how to be more involved in poor communities and communities where there are more kids like me. Again, not something the government can do, but I don't think it's a question of moral blame as much as it is a hopefully a sort of call to action that, look, some of these things can be helped. We've just got to do a little bit better of a job. Yeah, I mean, the analogy I've used before is if you create a card game, you want the rules to be fair. But regardless of if they were fair or not, once you're dealt your hand, you still got to play it. And it doesn't make sense to Absolutely. play it in the stupidest way possible, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah, you got to, as, as, as Mamal said, um, don't believe the deck is stacked against you. You got to believe that you can control your own life, even though she recognized better than anybody that life for a lot of these folks in Eastern Kentucky isn't fair. But again, that doesn't excuse not trying. Going to take a second here to break. Touchofmodern.com. What better uh, ad to do during the middle of talking about Hillbilly Elegy than touchofmodern.com? You can be from anywhere and you'll love the stuff on Touch of Modern because they got all kinds of cool little gadgets. Right. Uh, pictures, you know, neat uh, clothes, neat, you know, do utensils and like weird clocks. And I'm just telling you, just go to touchofmodern.com, download the app. I promise you, you're going to see something you want. I, I just guarantee it. there's no one who can go on there and not go. Well, that's kind of cool. Touchofmodern.com. It is cool gear, modern uh, appliances, clothes, everything you want. And if you go there right now uh, and, and buy something, I promise you, you'll like it from touchofmodern.com. You made a good point. There was an HBO series about this, and I can't remember the name of it, but it was on about a year ago. And it was the point about how if you have folks on Section 8 housing and poor people who only live with each other, 
that that creates a downward cycle. And that story was about that. It was about a racial issue, but it was it's the same theory. I mean, I, I know you don't want to spend a whole lot of time talking about solutions, but to be fair, I, that's an interesting one, and it's one that seems sort of valid to me, this idea that a rising tide raises all ships. It would be much better if we could not just isolate the poorest among us in their own place to keep them away from us, which seems to be what most government policy is. Yeah, it's it's one of these things where there, there's been a lot of interesting evidence on the way that concentrated poverty, you know, just living poor among pockets of poor has on the likelihood that kids are going to have a good life. And it makes total sense, right? I mean, if you see only other poor kids, only other poor families, you don't see what's possible, you don't see what's out there, you're never exposed to the hope of, of a better life because everyone you see around you is, is you know, is not living that better life. It, it requires, I think, seeing better examples and better opportunities to actually to be able to take advantage of those opportunities. So there's a lot of good evidence that, that we would do well by poor kids if we encouraged ways for the poor to live among the middle class, the poor to live among the upper class. And one of the things I talk about the book you could do is just change the way you administer Section 8 vouchers, right? So the way they're currently administered is almost designed to enclose poor people in these pockets of poor communities where there are only Section 8 vouchers in the neighborhood. But if you just spread the Section 8 vouchers over a broader range of people, you would expose kids to much different ways of life, much different opportunities, but and you that know, would be in everybody's benefit, right? It would be, be yeah, but you know why that won't happen. Kids. That won't happen because because richer people are or they're worried about the property value of their houses, right? And so, like, there's this worry that if you bring in neighbors, I mean, that's why it doesn't happen. When you say I agree with you, it would help, but that's why it doesn't really benefit everybody. And those people usually have political cloud. Yeah, uh, that's absolutely true, and I think that's why it doesn't happen. But this is one of the reasons why I say in the book, look, if, if rich people actually care about poor people as much as they say they do, then they've got to change certain ways. They've got to change certain attitudes that they have. Because as I found when I went to Yale, I'm sure you saw this when you went to Duke, people are not super welcoming to those who come from the outside. And it reflects itself in our politics. It reflects itself in our culture. But we are not going to be able to stand up on high. You know, elites are not going to be able to sit in New York and D.C. and pronounce things that make the, the lives of the poor better unless they're willing to take some more poor people into their lives and into their communities. It's just a matter of fact. I'm very good friends with this ESPN commentator, Bomani Jones, an African-American guy, and we always have this fight. But I believe this, and I wanted your take on it, that when you get amongst – the elite of society in major cities, their issue in terms of discrimination is less race than it is wealth. They are comfortable around middle class and rich people of any race, but poor people make them uncomfortable. Do you agree with that? I, I do agree with that. I, I you know, I, I, I don't know if, if, if you want to say poor on it because I just I agree with it very strongly. No, I, mean, I want the, you the to. Please, you notice, please, please go ahead. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. The the thing you notice when you live in these communities is that there are certain groups of people who one they're more familiar with and they're more acclimated towards, and also certain groups of people who I think they're a little bit more comfortable being uncomfortable with. And one of the things that that you see is that the attitudes, the habits, the way that poor people talk. It makes a lot of middle-income, upper-income people uncomfortable in a way that being around, you know, an upper-income Hispanic person or an upper-income black person doesn't make them. It's, it's just, they, they, they seem to, I, I don't know if it's because of a cultural value that they have or just because at the end of the day, an upper-income black person is very similar to an upper-income Hispanic person, upper-income white person, and so forth. Um, it, it, but, 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 you know, you, you come to, to Eastern Kentucky and you compare... Um, you know, somebody who's wealthy, maybe living on the south side of Chicago, I'm, of course, thinking of the president here, or David Axelrod, you know, his, his, one of his advisors who lived in the same area, I believe. They're very similar in their cultural tastes, yes. their cultural attitudes. But you compare them to somebody who lives in southern Ohio or eastern Kentucky, and they're a lot different, and I think people are uncomfortable with that difference. And the argument Bomani and I always have is Tiger Woods' kid is going – now, he's going to have a couple issues – that maybe the kid from Bell County or Breathitt County that's poor won't ha have, you know, maybe, who knows. And, and there, there will be – I'm not saying there's nothing, 
But on the overall scheme of things, Tiger Woods or Michael Strahan's kid is going to have it easier than the kid from from Breathitt County or or Bell County. I believe that. Do you? Yeah, I I do believe that. The way I think about it is that privilege is sort of like a bucket, and each item that that is part of your identity – gets put in that bucket, right? So being being black is an underprivileged bucket. Being really poor is from an underprivileged bucket. But being from Eastern Kentucky is also from an underprivileged bucket. As as I wrote in, in something recently, I don't think that anybody would deny that a kid from Breathitt County is going to have an easier time with the Yale University police once he gets to Yale University. But the biggest disadvantage of his life is being able to make it to Yale University in the first place. So it's it's a matter of it's a matter of when you combine all these buckets, I think the kid of Tiger Woods is just going to have a much better time. Of course, like you said, he's, there's still going to be disadvantages that come along with his skin color, but the biggest advantages are going to be associated with, with his class, and that's not something we should we should be afraid to talk about. You, you made a really good point about the value of social networks, basically, and about how – I mean, I, I think this is way underthought about. How much, like, who you know – and what circumstances you're comfortable in help you. And th- that gets to, you know, when you, you were able, once you found your way into that, to all of a sudden have a whole network of jobs, opportunities that you wouldn't have had otherwise, but breaking into that, there's the advantage of being wealthy or being connected politically, is just getting your foot in the door to begin with. What, what, what people don't recognize is, is that the greatest – the greatest disadvantage of my life when I went from, you know, lower class to, to, you know, whatever you want to call it is that it wasn't wealth. It was the fact that I didn't know what I was doing. A lot of times I didn't have access to the right information networks, didn't know who the right people were to talk to, didn't know how to conduct myself in certain social situations. And so it is really important for kids to have access to these informal networks because otherwise, they're kind of like I was, right? They're they're in these new environments. They have no idea what the hell they're supposed to do. So it's important, um, you know. And this is one of the things I've I thought about how to how to make it easier for kids who grew up like we did to actually have access to to those informal networks, even though they're not going to land with them already intact. They're going to have to acquire acquire them over time, right? You, t- you tell the story you, you told in the book about when you went to Yale Law School and you went to the dinner. Uh, with the law firm, because I have a very sure. similar story, and it made me laugh. But tell yours first. Well, it was this recruiting dinner with a fancy law firm that I really wanted to work for, and I remember that I just couldn't get over all of the fineries of the restaurant. So I didn't know how to pronounce the wine that was being offered. I couldn't get over how nice the linen sheets were on the tables. And then finally, I sit down, and there are like nine utensils. And I have no idea what to do. So I go and call my girlfriend, and she tells me basically, you know, move from outside to inside, use the fat spoon for the fat spoon uh, for soup, and you'll be fine. And then I, I was served sparkling water, which I had never had before in my entire life. And I actually spit it out because I thought it was like bad water. I thought it had gone bad in some ways because it just tasted sour to me. And I only realized when the waitress asked me if I wanted another <laughs> Pellegrino what she was actually talking about. So it was just incredibly mortifying, totally embarrassing. It just goes to show that in these environments, often what you don't know is the biggest disadvantage. Yeah, and sparkling water is awful, though, to be fair. So I totally understand why that would happen. <laughs> you know, I, I listen, my, my mom would be mortified if I said that like she didn't teach me stuff. She did, but my parents didn't drink, right, like ever. So I went at Duke, sure. Williams and Conley, you know, that law firm in D.C. And everybody, everyone yeah, my- wanted to work there when I was at Duke, like everyone. And I didn't know. Oh, why. yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, I'm sorry. I, I just my, my my wife actually worked there for a summer. So I, I definitely, you know, know it's still very, very much in high demand. Yeah. So everybody wanted to work there. I didn't know why I wanted to work there. I just wanted to work there because everyone said that's where you should work. You know, I was 21 years old when I went to law school. So like they invite me to that dinner. And when I sit down, you know, it's only like five people like five students and these folks and everybody's so nervous and, and, and they pour, you know, that this is normal. Like when they bring a bottle of wine, they pour it and let someone taste it. And so they pour that little sip. I don't know why they gave it to me, but like we didn't drink when I was growing. So like, you know, I didn't have wine at dinner. So they pour it and I look at the guy and go, 
can I have a little more than that? <laughs> and the guy goes, that was for you to taste. And you, I was exactly as mortified as you were because then I was like, oh, okay. And then that became a running joke uh, amongst all those folks. But now you, you mentioned when you went to law school this notion of – you did everything because you were supposed to, and you had a prof- you know you you applied for a clerkship because you were supposed to. You uh, went to these law firms because you were supposed to, and I totally related to all that. And I actually think that's an issue beyond this whole Appalachian hillbilly stuff. Law school to me, and there are sure. a lot of people listening to this who will go to law school. You just go do things, and they never really say to you why you should do them. Like, why are you why are you clerking? Why are you going to this law firm? It, 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 don't you think that's fascinating? Like they take the best students in the country and then they all just get into a herd mentality and do stuff and people don't even know why they're doing it. It's totally fascinating. And it's also ultimately, I think, not good for the students and not good for the, for the country that pays a ton of money to send these kids to law school to have a lot of them, just like you said, become followers of a herd. Or I always said we were like a school of fish. We were always swimming in one direction. And it's, I think the problem is, like you said, a lot of these folks are very talented and they should be doing things. They should be following their passions and, and making contributions to society in a way that they see fit. And oftentimes what they end up doing is going work in D.C. or New York at a corporate law firm where they make a fair amount of money. But most of them are miserable, right? I mean, you talk to people who go to these law firms. And a lot of them don't actually want to be practicing lawyers and don't actually enjoy it. That and was they're not practicing law. Experience. Most of them aren't even practicing. Like they're sitting there doing document review. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And it's not, it's just not an enjoyable, it's not an enjoyable experience for a lot of kids. You know, the, the people I know from law school who have had the most fun being lawyers are, are like, you know, to, to kind of, they they go they went to smaller firms. Sometimes they went to smaller regional firms, and you know Cincinnati or Minnesota. But that they're they're actually practicing attorneys and they're doing legal work. And it's a, it's amazing how much happier they are than some of the folks who are making a lot more money in New York, but are just pressing next on every single document they look at. Yeah, or they quit and became a radio show host, which is another path. They don't <laughs> they don't put that in the Duke in the Duke uh, thing when, when they send it out to students. Hey, you can end up doing radio in Kentucky, but uh, I actually am infinitely happier. Before I let you go, I know you got stuff to do, but um, I, I want to thank you for coming on here, and I I, I, do, I do encourage people in Kentucky to read the book, and I would suggest this, you know, read it, but the, the, you know. I felt bad about that article that was in the Herald because I felt like it didn't give you a fair shake. I do get a sense that you come at this from a good place and that you consider this not like as a, you consider this as a positive, helpful enterprise. And I do think shedding the light on Eastern Kentucky from someone intelligent and not just out to sort of exploit people for votes is important. And I just want to thank you for doing that because I don't think it gets done nearly enough. Well, thank you, man. I appreciate you saying that, and I appreciate talking to you. Hopefully, we'll uh, keep in touch. I really enjoyed this. I enjoyed it as well. J.D. Vance, uh, thank you very much. Send lawyers, guns, and money. Oh!